Well, I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. David Hagedorn. Um, and we're going to be talking about a number of things around um, uh, biofeedback and electrical brain stimulation. And I'll just uh, first want to introduce Dr. Hagedorn a, a bit. Uh, Dr. Hagedorn actually has a, a long career. He was a, a U.S. Army medic. Um, and uh, he has uh, actually then, since that time, he's a PhD. He's, he is an expert in um, uh, neuroscience and biofeedback. He consults with a variety of organizations in that. Um, he's an international speaker and instructor for um, uh, electrophysiological assessment and interventions, and with uh, some particular... Uh, areas of interest are TBI, traumatic brain injury, and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a number of other uh, areas that we'll, that we'll get into. And uh, first of all, uh, David, thank you for taking the time. And I wonder if you could just give us uh, a little bit of background and explain what electrocephalography biofeedback is and how it helps to address neurological problems uh, like chronic pain and addictions and, and TBI, et cetera. Sure. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate the time to talk with you. Uh, EEG, or the electroencephalography, um, which is the uh, term for looking at the electrical activity that's generated within the brain, um, is one more tool in our toolbox. We have the ability with this non-invasive measurement of the brain to look at function or dysfunction because we have normal reference groups for EEG and we can look at a person who's got complaints and then lay their brain activity against that of a age gender match who does not have symptoms. And by doing so, we can see what locations in the brain are, let's say, out of whack. And then we know because of um, you know, many, many decades of research around the world, what brain regions and networks produce certain symptoms. And when you get an overlay of the patient's symptom with the location in the brain that's abnormal that um, is designed to produce those symptoms, you have confidence that you're looking at the right location. And that gives you a target. Uh, that target then can be addressed in several ways. We, it, it, and let me just back up. We, when we're looking at a person with um, leg pain, we look at an x-ray and start looking for some fractures if they're have a hip pain, we're looking for any fractures on the femoral head, for example, um, in helping us identify the source of the pain. Well, the brain's job is to interpret nociceptive input and tell us how much it hurts. And the brain then, you know, is a response is responding to the nociceptive input of the spinal cord or in cases of emotional pain, um, it also processes that same data and is looks abnormal on um, looking at the EEG findings in many cases. So that gives us an opportunity to target locations. And we can then 
use something called neurofeedback or brain-computer interface, or also called EEG biofeedback. They're all synonymous terms to identify an area and help the person retrain or recalibrate that area of the brain. And it, it's, it's not much different than learning to play an instrument or learn a new language or teaching our brain to do something it didn't do before. That's one option. We now also have neuromodulatory and neurostimulatory technology. We, we have transcranial magnetic stimulation or theta burst stimulation, which is enough energy to polarize and depolarize neurons. And we can target areas in the brain with different frequencies using this uh, neuromodulation um, technology, TMS or TPS. And then we also have something called direct current or alternating current. Um, it's transcranial again, where you put sensors on the scalp. And that is, does not have enough energy to polarize, depolarize a neuron, but it does modulate activity. And it does adjust the threshold for polarization and polarization. So we can use these tools to be more surgical and identify locations in the brain that are producing the chronic pain, uh, sensation. Now, the source of the pain may be distal to the brain. It may be, um, you know, say lumbar injury or compression or fractures or things that are not resolved. Uh, clearly, you're not going to remedy the hardware, if you will, that's broken. But the brain can interpret that pain scale be lower and more tolerable with lower medications, uh, lower doses of medication, if we can then use these alternative and adjunct therapies. That was a great uh, foundation. And so clearly there are a number of things I'd like to follow up on. So you're, <clears throat> I mentioned first uh, uh, the particular areas that you find this to be most effective. And so chronic pain seems like it would be one area, both um, uh, physical pain, so you have a, a lumbar spine injury. Um, have you used it in, in that way, but also using it in uh, you know, emotional pain if we talk about PTSD or talk about um, uh, uh, something else along the uh, the mental emotional sphere. What what areas are are you using this in? Yeah, and that's a great setup for, for this answer, Dan. Because yes, we do use it in PTSD and early childhood trauma scenarios where people have um, a lot of uh, emotional baggage, if you will, and it's pain. The brain interprets it as painful, and. and and we can see it and it's different it looks different on the eeg and the locations of the brain are somewhat different um as an overview there's something called the pain matrix in the brain and it has two pathways primarily one's called the medial pathway and one's called the lateral pathway and the medial pathway projects from the medial thalamus to the anterior cingulate and the insular cortex. And that processes affect or motivational aspects of pain. It's like, how unpleasant is it? And that's a unique qualifier 
um, of pain. It's the medial pathway processing of pain. And then you have the lateral pathway, and that projects from the lateral thalamus to the primary and secondary somatosensory cortex and the insula cortex. And that processes the sensory, the discriminative aspect of pain, like the intensity and the location. What we find most interesting is that people with emotional pain seem to have a more a posterior processing involving different areas in the brain than someone with no susceptive input from like a, a cervical injury or a spinal cord injury or you know femur break or something along that line. Um, and that can help us then target their interpretation of that emotional pain. And the brain really doesn't care what pain type it is. Um, if it's um, an injury to the leg, or even if you've got um, phantom limb, because of missing limb, you have phantom limb pain, the brain still says it hurts. And if you have emotional pain, the brain still says it hurts. And it's, it does a lot of patients a disservice when, you know, we as doctors discredit their intent or discredit their they're telling us how much they hurt when they have an emotional pain. Um, it's as if we're telling them they're making it up, they're faking it. I, I see no physical evidence for your pain, therefore you don't have it. That's not true. The brain says it hurts, it hurts. And, and for us to have an empathic approach that embraces current neuroscience technology and knowledge, makes us better doctors and helps us be more compassionate and understanding of where the patient's coming from. And almost more importantly, it opens up our eyes and ears to new treatment options that help target the sources in the body um, that are causing people discomfort. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. So really what you're doing in, um, uh, in uh, kind of, simple terms is you have a brain computer interface um, that is uh, um, you're able to with some technologies that you've developed uh, bringing that to primary care and making it easier easy enough in primary care to to see that and then you have uh, which you've alluded to various ways in which one can retrain the brain essentially uh, through biofeedback and, and through some of these electrical stimulation uh, uh, techniques. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's also important when we think about the brain to also uh, keep not put blinders on there either. We, we, we think about the enteric nervous system. We think about the important role of inflammation and nociceptive process when we got in the enteric system and how that also plays a role in pain and the the communication between the GI system and the brain. So when I say brain, I'm not excluding our second brain, which is the enteric nervous system. Um, so we, we also are mindful of that in our evaluations and in our treatment. Um, but to get back to your point on neurofeedback as one modality, it's I would say it's biofeedback, which covers both neurofeedback, EEG training, and also heart training. Because heart rate variability biofeedback is another way of targeting the nervous system, and in this particular case, 
um, a combination of the autonomic nervous system response and the interface with the central nervous system. So with heart rate variability biofeedback, we can help regulate the autonomic nervous system and, and put a better balance there so it's not dominantly sympathetic. Um, and that helps reduce pain. Um, also, we can train key locations in the brain. So, for example, if I wanted to train the medial pain pathway on how pleasant, how unpleasant something is, um, I can target Brodmann area 24 or Brodmann area 9, 12, 46, and 47 because those areas in the brain um, are involved in the cognitive appraisal of that pain stimulus. So I can help re-regulate a certain location in the brain to help it handle um, the interpretation of the pain stimulus. Um, so this just those two biofeedback modalities when used with, you know, with some surgical precision um, because of some baseline testing with a patient um, gives people an option. And the beauty of that is you don't worry about opioid addiction with these treatments. You know, it's not um, something that can, is interfering with our medication care. Uh, it's adjunctive, it's complementary, and it doesn't pass through the liver or the kidney. So it's a, it should be a standard of care as, as modalities for treating and caring for pain, um, just because of the side effect profile alone. Yes, so it's, uh, I mean, it's a lab test for the brain, really. It's functional testing for the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's very exciting, of course. And why did, I know you're working at Camp Lejeune. But why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing there and how you're training uh, physicians in these techniques and, and then get into perhaps some of the, uh, I, I would imagine there's a lot of uh, PTSD and, and TBI that, that you're treating there. What's this, uh, tell us a little bit of how how that's evaluated and, and kind of the length of time and, and a little bit about your experience with that. You bet. Yes. So, so, so first of all, the, the base here, Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, is a very large base. We've got a high operation tempo. There's MARSOC Special Operations Group here, um, part of SOCOM. Um, they have a very high, high deployment and high uh, kinetic um, role in the in in the in the war, and as a result, there's a lot of injuries. The a lot of um, blast-related injuries, um, uh, spinal cord compression um, type injuries, loss of limbs, um, and and as a result of all that uh, um, kind of physical trauma to the body, you can imagine. Um, that there's also the constant, you know, the, when you're bathing a person in constant fear of death or seeing the death of their friends, then you get the additional uh, slow burn trauma of PTSD, which is really be thought of, think of it as a slow burn brain injury. And we have to contend with both of those. So a patient comes in with insomnia, chronic pain, headache, tinnitus, depression, uh, panic attacks, um, you know, then physical pain that would maybe would resemble fibromyalgia type symptoms. Um, we have to contend with all of that. So what do we do? You know, we, we teach the doctors just you know, like medical school 101, you know, a good clinical history. 
is that you cannot replace that. No technology replaces a competent physician's clinical history and careful thought. And then you use some assessment tools. And we start at the most basic ones of all. I mean, something everybody's seen, the pain scales. You know, what's your pain? Where is it? Is it a burning? Is it a stabbing? We use those subjective tests. We'll also use the Dyer test, which is an addiction risk test. Um, and we're talking about pain because we want to get an idea. Um, are opioids appropriate for this person? And there's ways of scoring that. Um, we use NeuroRead. There's a company called NeuroRead. Um, they have a website and they are designed for physicians to quickly have access to these scoring tools uh, through a portal. So the doctor can quickly take, uh, type in a few answers for your patient and get an output to put in the chart. So we're trying to make tools available um, to make things go faster or the nurse can do it, the technician. Um, so we do those basic paper pencil, if you will, type value. Then the next level is let's look at physiology. You know, let's look at inflammatory markers in the blood. You know, what's the homocysteine? What's the CRP? Do we need to do an ANA? What other markers in the blood system for inflammatory processes do we look at? Um, and, and not be myopic, but um, look at la our lab data and and then we also then consider EEG lab, another lab. We're looking at the brain electrical activity, the EEG, and we're looking at ECG, the heart electrical activity. And with the heart data, we can look at the heart rate variability patterns. And if they're abnormal, it gives us a, a, a target again to treat it with uh, heart rate variability biofeedback, in some cases maybe a beta blocker, um, things along that line. Um, or something GABAergic, if you need something GABAergic, we can, the EEG would tell us that as well. That gives us targets. It's not just academic to do these tests. It's not just because it's, an, it's a new fad. It's real important functional data. It's as important as doing a CBC. And it's fortunately now simple enough and cheap enough to do. Um, and just because you know, uh, some of the third-party payers haven't caught up with the importance of it. It doesn't negate the science. The science is clear. These are important bits of data to add to your clinical assessment. Uh, so, and again, that's the goal to teach a military physician um, that, you know, they have resources and they need to use them for a full evaluation of a patient. In your experience in terms of working with physicians at Camp Lejeune and other places, what are other uh, therapeutic modalities that seem to go with that? Is that uh, uh, certainly diet and nutrition and, and things uh, of that nature, but are there, there are other things? You've talked about heart rate variability, which seems to be uh, integrated right into this, this process, which is wonderful. Are there other uh, particular therapies that you found particularly useful, and what is the kind of the extent of of uh, how a uh, individual would follow up with with that kind of therapy once a week or three times a week, and and for how long, and uh, that sort of thing. Sure. So a couple of modalities that, in addition to the biofeedback that we use, um, are acupuncture. Um, and in a skill, and we have battlefield acupuncture, and then there's next level acupuncture that are taught 
uh, to the positions at Camp Lejeune. Um, and, and that becomes another tool in the toolbox to help manage pain without, again, having a medication as to deliver a kidney. Um, that's one. Um, there's also EMG biofeedback or muscle biofeedback because, you know, a lot of times um, when you start having areas of, 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 of pain and, and focal discomfort, say if it's a back injury or something, um, the muscles, the adjunct muscles there are also very, very tight and that adds to the pain. So by training muscle um, to relax and even using therapeutic massage, that's also a very important modality. We just don't want to leave everything, anything off the table. Um, the more we harness um, proven technologies and use them synergistically, um, the greater outcome, the better outcome, and the less likelihood that a person's going to become addicted to narcotics and go down that path because we are heading it off much sooner with a full complement of interventions. And that also includes enteric nervous system balance and gut health balance. That's very, very important. It should not be overlooked. Unfortunately, it's very often overlooked clinically, and we don't look at it that way. We see that that enteric system is as important as looking at the brain itself. So that's a big part of it. Um, and, and frequency varies. Early on, ideally, you'd want to do biofeedback two to three times a week. Um, there are new technologies allowing people to do this at home. Um, and there's one group, a, a nonprofit group called Semper Fi Fund, um, and they see the importance of this, and they're um, purchasing um, consumer products in the biofeedback domain and making them available to Marines, sailors, soldiers, airmen, um, to help them care for themselves. Because a lot of times it's not... It's not easy for them to get in to see a doctor two, three times a week. Um, when it comes to using the transcranial magnetic stimulation or direct current stimulation, you know that really has to be done by a doctor in an office. That's not those are should not be home technologies. Um, even though there are some DC uh, devices out there being being used for sports sports enhancement, um, I don't recommend that. That that's not in my view a home use tool yet. Um, and, and really, TMS is a daily thing. So you would come for transcranial magnetic stimulation every day for several weeks. Um, and then it would go to a maintenance phase after that. Uh, so that's generally what patients will, can expect. Um, it's a pretty, pretty heavy full court press for you know, four weeks. Um, but we, if we can get ahead of it and start putting coping skills in place as well, um, and improving sleep in the in the process, and then and we get good results. And um, anti-inflammatory therapies of different types are also important. Uh, even the use of CBD oil, which is very very popular right now and just being widely discussed, for some people that can be helpful at pretty high doses. Um, it's not a panacea, um, but it is one more tool in the toolbox. There's a final question, and, and at some level you've answered this, but of course you're going to be speaking at our annual conference in uh, San Antonio. And could you just give uh, a little snapshot or capsule of, of what you think a clinician will get out of um, attending that presentation and, and uh, understanding the, uh, the technology that you're, you're talking about? Sure. 
Yeah, that's right. So the you know, the upcoming um, conference in San Antonio is a really important. More and more physicians recognize this is not fringe medicine. This is this is the future of medicine. This is advanced medicine. It's not it's not substandard medicine. Um, and it, it sets the, it sets a new uh, pacer for new doctors coming out of residency. I think that's tremendously important. Uh, I see residents and they're hungry to use current scientifically proven data. So at the conference, I want to make sure that people are aware of what is the science, what is the what is the validity, what is the empirical support for the use of electrophysiology markers. Um, where is it weak? Where is it strong? Um, it's, it's, it's incumbent on every doctor to have that knowledge, to know if they're sitting at their medical board asking questions, that they, they're solid on knowing the empirical nature of what they're doing, how to do it confidently. So we will cover the use of um, electrophysiology tools. Uh, we will cover subjective testing, objective testing, um, and multimodal treatment options. So we'll be talking about the pain scales. We'll be talking about the nervous systems. We'll be talking how do you how do you measure those? We'll be talking about the different model uh, modes or multimodal treatment options like EEG, HRV, neuromodulation, neurostimulation, and the empirical support for each. Uh, and so it's a you know it's an aggressive agenda to try to cover not only you know, what does pain look like in the brain? How do you measure it? And what do you do about it? Um, everybody wants to leave a, a lecture that, you know, you remember about 15% of it. Hopefully that 15% you walk away with is, what do I do on Monday morning when I've got a patient who's had pain for 40 years and crying in my office saying, no one can help me, what do I do? And um, I, I'm confident that people will leave with having a short list of what, what they could do at that moment.